Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here. And if you have your Bible, then um, please keep it open in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to focus on one verse this morning. Uh, Not the usual way we uh, do things, but uh, I'll put it into context for you, and we'll we'll look at this in some detail. So there's a title for you, Loving Your Church Well. Loving Your Church Well. And I need to pray as as I bring this message to you. So let's do that. Father, Father, um, I would pray that I would love this church well by bringing your word to them in a way that is loving, in a way that builds them up. I pray that we would love our church well by listening to your word and then putting it into practice bit by bit in a way that glorifies and honors you but helps us to grow and mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. I bring this to you as as an offering and ask that by your Spirit it would please you uh, to use it in a very, very special way this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loving your church well. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to love his church well. Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church. Do you think you love your church well? Are you loving her well? How do we love her well? We could even say that all the New Testament letters written by the apostles, they're all written to churches asking them to love one another well. And just sort of linking this back to last week from Ephesians chapter 4, we we discovered that if we're going to love each other well, uh, number one, we need to be humble and gentle and patient with one another. That's what it means to love each other well. Secondly, if we're going to love each other well, we need to work hard. We need to maintain the gospel unity that Christ has given us. A third way we love each other well is by using our gifts to build one another up. And a fourth way to love one another well is where we speak the truth to one another. But as we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14 this morning, I want us to look very practically what does it mean to love each other well within our relationships. But as we move towards the passage, I want to ask you, what is your favorite biblical metaphor? What's your favorite biblical image of the church? Just think about it. I wonder which image comes to mind first. If you go to the scriptures, you will find that the church is described as a as a bride. Maybe that's the one that came first. Sometimes the church is actually described as a as a city. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 21. Sometimes the church is described as a temple, 1 Peter chapter 2. Sometimes it's described as a, as a beautiful garden, again, Revelation chapter 22. Sometimes the Bible, uh, sometimes the Bible describes, I'm coming through the bottom there somewhere. <laughs> that just threw me off. I thought I had animation going on here that I never knew existed. Sometimes the <laughs> The Bible describes the church as a field. 
Sometimes it's described as a, as a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, sometimes the church is described as a, as a people who are just God's possession. And sometimes, basically, the church is described as sheep. And as we've discovered from Ephesians chapter 4, the church is always described as a, as a body. But there is one metaphor in the Bible that captures the relational heart of the church. And that is what? The church is? The church is family. The church is family. Family is the metaphor that captures the relational heart of the church. In fact, this this metaphor in its various aspects was a favorite of the Lord Jesus himself. Look at it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 49. Pointing, his, pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It was a favorite of the Apostle Paul himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I, um, I, uh, I grew up as an only child. And uh, that is something of a rarity uh, these days. I think there are pros and cons of growing up as an only child. I think there are more cons than pros. But it's also very easy for us as Christians to operate as if we are the only adopted son or daughter of the Father. When I was growing up as an only child, I had all the love, I had all the attention, I had all the affirmation from my parents. It was all about me. That's why I've got so many problems. And, and, but we can, we can often do that as, 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 as children of God. We, we can somehow think it's what? It's, it's all about me. I operate as if I'm the only one, that, that all of the Father's love and all of the Father's attention, it's all about me. But when we pray, how do we pray? Our Father, who's adopted us into His family with multi-millions of brothers and sisters all over the world, and then a few of them He puts together in little local churches just like this one. If we're going to say we are church, we have to say we are family. We are family. Now, if you've got your Bible, 1 Thessalonians, let me show you the, fa the family paradigm. Let me show you the language that Paul uses as he addresses this church. Listen for how he describes his role within the church. So right up front in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Have a look at chapter 2 and verse 7 and 8. Instead, we were like young children among you. There's the family. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Father, children, mother. Down to verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a Father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom 
in glory. Do, do, do you see it? Do you see the family language? There's father, there's mother, there's, there's, there's children. And in fact, when Paul addresses the Thessalonian Christians throughout the book, over 15 times, the most of any other letter in the New Testament, he addresses the Christians as brothers and sisters. It's easy to say it, but do we truly look at each other as brothers and sisters? Truly. Do we? And have a look at this. If you go down to chapter 2 and verse 17, where Paul says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. So when the apostle Paul couldn't get to the church, when he couldn't visit them, when he was prevented from being with them, there was this intense longing and desire to be together. Do you feel something of that? When you came here this morning, were you looking forward to seeing one another? I've got to be honest with you this morning. I woke up this morning and I was a little bit grumpy. I was a real grumpy bum. And I got to church and I was feeling really grumpy. But as soon as you guys started coming in, as soon as I started seeing you, as soon as just getting around a little bit to greet and that, suddenly my, my, my spirit lifted and I, and, I, and, I, and I felt this longing, this surge, this desire to be together. Do you feel something of that when we're not together? When you go away on holiday for four weeks, five weeks, five months, is there a longing to come back and be with one another? There's something of that. That's what it means to be family. But now have a look at this, and we're getting to our verse. Look at what he says in, in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Now may the, may, the Lord, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So Paul prays that our love may increase. May the family love increase. It's something that we should be praying for. Are we praying that our love for one another will increase? But how do you do that? How do you love? How do you love well? How do you love more and more? Well, the answer is in verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. That's how you love well. It is to encourage one another, right? In order to what? Build one another up. How do we do that? Well, look at the verse carefully. Firstly, if you've got your Bible, that, that verse, it looks backwards because in the previous chapter, in the previous section, Paul is correcting the Thessalonians' understanding about the second coming. He's correcting their teaching or correcting their understanding. And that's what love does. Love corrects. We don't leave each other wallowing in false understanding of truth. But the verse always looks forward as well to this verse. If we're going to encourage each other, if we're going to build each other up, if our love is going to increase, then we need to warn those who are idle and 
disruptive. We need to encourage the disheartened or the timid. We need to help the weak, and we need to be patient with everyone. This might be a little bit of a surprise for you this morning. That's how we love well. That we warn the unruly. That we encourage the disheartened. That we help the weak. And we continue to be patient with one another. Let me put it this way to you. Is it true that we all have one father? True? True. Is it true that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it true, if you want to put it this way, that Jesus is our big brother? True. But we are not all in the same place spiritually, are we? Some of us are just starting out. Some of us are newly saved. Some of us will be on the road a little, lo- a little while. Some of us a little bit longer. Some of us a little bit longer. Some of us on the Christian road for 50 or 60 years. We're also at different levels of maturity, aren't we? And in, within the this, this, this spectrum of Christians, we all come with different things, different background, different baggage, different hang-ups, different sins that we're, we're, we're dealing with. We've had different experiences, different joys, different hurts. All temptations are common to man, but we respond to temptations in different ways. We react in different ways. We're all very different within the spectrum of the Christian family. You get the differing feel? Which means that if we're going to encourage one another, if we're going to build one another up in the truth, listen, we have to consider where each other is at in order to do that well. We've got to consider that we're all in different places and spaces. We're all all dealing with different stuff in different ways and different times. I mean, this sounds like a bit of a counseling session, doesn't it? Lynn and Belinda. Well, this is going to become a little bit clearer as we look at our verse. Now, look at the verse carefully. Hope I've still got it up on the screen there. No, we'll come to that there. Look at the verse carefully. Notice that Paul describes three types of children within the family of God. You notice? There's the idle and disruptive. There are the disheartened. And there is the weak. Do you see those three categories? They are three broad categories of children within the family of God. They are broad, they are not exhaustive, but they sort of overarchingly describe all Christians in different ways, different times, in different spheres. In other words, what Paul is saying, let's make this personal for BBC, Paul is saying that within the family of God here at BBC, there are going to be believers who are idle and disruptive at certain times. There are going to be believers who are disheartened. There are going to be believers that are weak. And notice what Paul says as he, as he separates these categories. You don't encourage these different categories in the same way, do you? You have to look at where everybody is at and then you encourage into where they are in the spectrum. Let me give you a personal illustration from an earthly family unit. As you will probably know, I have three boys, three beautiful boys, Ben, Mark, 
And Jordan, I'm not going to embarrass him. I'm sorry, Mark. He's already hiding at the back there. But I will tell you about my three boys. They all have different personalities. They all have different intellects. They all have different abilities. They all have different sinful bends. They've had different experiences and hurts. Their sinfulness is manifested differently, which means they struggle against different sins in different ways. Now, one of the enormous challenges that Belinda, that's my wife, and I have faced and are facing, and every Christian parent faces, is trying to raise your children up before the Lord according to their particular way, their particular bend, their uniqueness, their, their, their particular DNA, if you want to put it that way. And you know what happens, parents, when you try the one parenting rule across three kids that are very different? Do you know what happens? It doesn't it flops. Think about it this way. Would you deal with a child that has got autism the same way as a child that hasn't got autism? Would you? Would you deal with a child that's got a physical disability in the same way as a child that's got a non-physical disability? Would you, would, you, would you treat them or handle them whichever, in the same way? Of course not. And so we're all different, and Paul sort of puts it into these three categories, and I'm going to unpack them for you and show you how this all works out. So here's the first child within the family of God that Paul mentions. He says, warn the idle and disruptive. Now, the Greek word for idle and disruptive is one word. It's katakus. It's, it's one, one little Greek word which at the very heart means unruly. It's probably disruptive. That would be the better word. And it's a broad word that also includes idleness. So what Paul is saying is this, that in any family of God, different times, different ways, whatever, Paul is saying within the family of God, there are going to be combinations of the children of God who are unruly, lazy, idle, rebellious, addictive, willful, deceitful, impulsive, manipulative, hard-hearted, and disruptive. And would you agree with me that all Christians can be like that at different times in different ways? Amen? Right? So for another example, let me, let me take, give a, you, you take, a, t- take a differing between two baby Christians, and I'm not talking the physical type, the spiritual type, two newly saved Christians. One gets saved and man, they're on fire for the Lord. They're evangelizing everybody from the postman to the Pope. I mean, it is just going great guns. They're delivered from all manner of sins and devices. The swearing is gone and that's gone and this is gone. And then you get another babe in Christ and they've just, oh man, it's just a struggle. They're saved. They've been, they've been saved before the Lord, but their vices and stuff, it's not instantly delivered. And they continue to be willful and addictive and pulsive and struggle. And, and sometimes those struggles can actually last a lifetime. You see, at any point within the Christian spectrum and walk, we can all become a little unruly, a little rebellious, a little disruptive. And when Paul talks about being disruptive or unruly, it it ranges from anything from being sexually immoral, having explosive anger, lying, stealing, cheating, drunkenness, foul language, selfishness, pride, divisiveness, laziness, and so the list could go on. Now, 
Have a look at the verse again. Well, there it is. Have a look at the verse again. And, and, and what does it say? How do you encourage? How do you speak the truth in love to an unruly person, an unruly Christian? What does it say? Warn. You warn them. You warn the unruly. You warn the rebellious. When as an earthly parent you've had an unruly child, what do you do? You warn them. And you warn them about the consequences that will be coming if they continue in their unruliness. Now this I know is going to sound like a bit of a shock to some of us here, but we need to gently and graciously warn one another when we're getting into unruly behavior. You don't say to a Christian who is unruly, well, ah, you know, we're all not perfect, right? I mean, ach shame, to use a South African expression, ach shame, it's just keep going. You don't do that. That's encouraging someone to continue in their unruliness. Now, I want to say to you this morning, I know how hard this is, brothers and sisters. Because when you are even gently and graciously seeking to warn a brother or sister, they may not take the warning well. They may reject you. They may reject the warning. The person could explode in anger, especially if you've warned them about their explosive anger. You could get accused of hypocrisy. How dare you tell me? Why don't you go and take the log out of your own eye before you come and take the splinter out of my eye? But what happens if we don't do it? What happens if we don't warn each other? Do you know what happens? Let me show you. I'll give you one little caveat in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, to the Christians, and this is in the context of sexual immorality, he says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So what that means is that if we don't check one another, warn one another, that, that sin can have a yeasting, cancerous, spreading effect throughout the whole body. And if we don't warn one another, I mean, it is not going to go well for that other person before God. Let me make this a little bit more personal. I arrived at uh, Bustleton Baptist Church seven and a half years ago. And I'll never forget the moment. had an auspicious start. It was the 1st of December, 2013. It was a Sunday, my first Sunday, getting to preach. And I walked through those foyer doors, and uh, I instantly became aware of an unruly situation on my very first Sunday. That had been going on for year after year. And it took nearly two years to sort out. The problem was not unruliness. We all get a little unruly, brothers and sisters, don't we? If you've forgotten that you live in the what? You live in the flesh, right? The problem was not unruliness. The problem was that the, 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 the parties concerned, they were never warned. They were never held to account. Church discipline was not applied. See, there's this understanding among some Christians, and I get it. it it's, there's this understanding that goes something like this, but basically we never warn. We only encourage in that sense. 
We have to warn the unruly. Are we prepared to do that with each other? It's hard. Let me go to the second category of child within the family of, of God, and uh, I've called it the timid child. Your translation might be a disheartened, also a, a, a good word. Now, here's the definition, the Greek definition of, of the word. The word timid or disheartened means to be small-souled. Small-souled. A child of God that is timid or disheartened is prone to fears, they can be easily discouraged. They can become fretful and anxious. The timid is the Christian who can often feel so alone in a dangerous world. They are very often disheartened by their own shortcomings, overwhelmed by the hardships they've faced. They very quickly want to, to give up. We all know what it means to be disheartened, don't we? At different times, in different places and spaces. You know, Paul's protege, Timothy, was a very timid man. We call him Timid Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and says this, for, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Why does he write that to Timothy? Because Timothy was, 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 was timid. He was fearful of others. Paul's protege was a people pleaser. He was afraid to stand up against the false teachers that invaded the church. He was very afraid to warn the unruly and the divisive in the church. The timid Christian is very prone to thinking that their father no longer loves them because life is so hard. The timid Christian can be so distraught over losing a loved one. They can be so fearful in the face of persecution, just like Timothy. Look at the verse. How do you, how do you speak truth into the, the timid? How do you speak truth into the disheartened? What, what do you do? What's the word? Encourage. You don't warn them. You encourage them. It means you come alongside tenderly. You seek to, to console. You bring solace. You keep encouraging them with, with, with the scripture of the faithfulness of their father who never abandons them, will never leave them. You know, I, I sat under, in the, in the very formative years of my, my Christianity, I sat under a teaching where... where, where where, where I was always hearing warnings about my fears and my anxieties. I'm a very anxious person, believe it or not. I have certain anxieties that have plagued my life since the age of 13, before, long before I was a Christian. And as I sat and I came into Christianity and I was hearing warning of the warning of the warning, you shouldn't be afraid, you shouldn't be anxious, it felt like condemnation and sin, and the result was that I was so afraid to share that. I was so afraid to bring that out into the open because all I feared was condemnation. Now anxiety does have a sinful component, of course it does. But, but at the very root of anxiety is, 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 is suffering and brokenness. 
And it's very interesting, isn't it, that when, 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 when God's people in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament, when they were afraid and a little bit anxious, uh, people like uh, uh, Abraham and Moses and, and, and David and Joshua, the disciples, the, even the Apostle Paul, they weren't warned. What did God do? He encouraged them with words of what? I am. I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Uh, look, at, look at the heartache here. This is just one example. I could give you many, but Moses reported all this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their what? Their discouragement and harsh labor. It, it is so easy to see everybody like a nail that you need to hit with a biblical hammer. You do not warn. You do not warn a discouraged, anxious person that is disheartened by the hardness of life. That is insensitive. It is uncaring. It is unloving. It's not the way we love each other well, is it? But there's a third category. And have a look at the, uh, the scripture. And, and you'll notice there in verse 14, you've got this third category and, and you notice there it's the weak, it's, it's the weak child, the weak Christian. Now again, this word weak has got such a broad semantic range. It covers a huge range of weakness. It, it, can, it can go from a physical weakness, a physical disability. It can go from a mental weakness, a mental instability. It, it can talk about things like Alzheimer's and dementia and those sort of things. Uh, to, 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 to all manner of, of, of spiritual brokenness. But let me give you a definition of the word weak. And here's, this is, this is at, at the root of the word, it means to be truly crushed or overwhelmed by life's experiences. That's what weakness means. It means to be truly crushed, truly overwhelmed by life's extremities. This includes the oppressed. It includes the abused. It includes the truly victimized. I'm sure that you've heard this said, and perhaps you've even said it yourself. Oh, you know so-and-so in the church is so needy. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Some are so needy. Because they have been so broken by the things that have happened to them. And as you look at that verse in verse 14, what, is it, what does it say that you need to do? How do, we, how do we encourage? How do we speak the truth in love to the weak? What do we do? What does it say? Warn them? No, 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 no. What, what do you do? You help. Well, you, yeah. You, you help, but what does that mean? It means you, it means you hold on to them. And you don't let them go. And, and very often in the word help is a practicality. It's a practical help. You see, because people that have been crushed by extremity, they're very often unable to do the things that they want to do. Let me give you an example. A, a, woman that is the, a woman that is, a Christian woman that is crushed by abuse and then abandoned by her husband is going to need ongoing help, aren't they? 
They're going to need help around the house. They're going to need help picking up the kids. They're going to need lots and lots of shoulders to cry on. And what help means, means being there again and again and again and again and listening again and again and, and bringing the encouragement of God's word that oh, their father loves them, that their father has not abandoned them, that their father will help them, that they can turn to their father, that he is the father of mercy and compassion and he will, he will bring the help and all that is needed at the, the right time. Abused Christians, for example, are often so terrified, they're so fearful, with the result that they can become so incapacitated at times. Again, you know, you can, I've said this, I'm sure I have. You you, you say, oh, you know, so-and-so Christian, they need to grow up. Well, some of them do. Uh, But but so-and-so needs to grow up, they need to take control, they need to learn to get over it. It's not how we treat people that are weak. If you had a disabled child, would you simply say to them, just get over yourself? Like enough now? We wouldn't. We're all unruly. We're all disheartened. And we're all weak. Different times, different places, different spaces, due to different experiences and hurts. So what does that mean for us? What, what is, what is, how, does that, how does it turn the heart? How does it turn our hearts in action towards one another? Well, look at the verse again, and Paul actually gives us the, uh, the application Notice he says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn the idle, the disruptive, the unruly, encourage the disheartened, the timid, help the weak, and here comes the application, therefore be what? Be patient with everyone. There's the application, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit for you. It's interesting that when Paul, the apostle, defines love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, love is patient. Very first up, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Last week, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, be humble, be gentle, and be patient with everyone. Why do we need to be patient with one another? Well, it should be obvious by now. But the reason we are patient is because we've all got, in the providence of God, we've all got unique walks with the Lord. We're all going at a different pace. We're going at a different space. And, and the reason we need to be patient is because it's so easy to get frustrated with one another because you think a Christian's not growing at the pace that they should be growing. Meanwhile, we can be blinded to our own lack of growth in certain areas, and we also forget just how long growth has taken in our lives. We can often deal with each other as Christians as if sin should be eradicated all, like we shouldn't have sin in this place. That's how we deal with one another sometimes. Sin will never be eradicated, will it? Never. (laughs) Not while you live in this world, in this body. Sometimes patience does mean that you need to let the unruly go. But you never give up. And you always long for their repentance and their return. Patience means that we need to remember that growth 
is very more often a slow, gradual process. I love those growth spurts. Have you had one lately? Tell me about it afterwards. I hope you've had a growth spurt. And I hope you remember, they, they're wonderful times, but oh, they're so few and far between. The, the modus operandi of God through his spirit is usually just slow, 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 like through a great percolator coffee. And here's the thing, but you know, for those that are so broken, those who are so weak, those who have been so crushed by the extremities of things that have happened to them, sometimes that growth can be so slow. Sometimes it's not even detectable for so long. So, let me do this. Patience, let me apply it into the three categories of people, okay? What does patience look like to the unruly, to the timid, and to the weak? Here's number one. Patience to the unruly child of God means that we do have to bear with their unruliness. We have to bear with it. It, but it doesn't mean we don't say anything. And it certainly doesn't mean that we just let bygones be bygones and we'll see whether it's all going to work out. But patience means that we persevere with them. We're gently, consistently speaking truth and warning into that space, into that behavior. It's gentle warnings. It's, it's constructive words of ammunition to the unruly brother or sister. And, and again, let me say to the unruly it can result in, in, in church discipline, both for the sake of that person and for the sake of the church. Patience to the timid child or the disheartened child means, and I've said this already, but it's, it's repeat, patience means that we continually nourish them with the faithfulness and the love of the Father again and again and again. And to be patient with the disheartened is to keep, keep sort of trying to turn their eyes back to their Lord, back to their Father, using words of Scripture, sometimes just sitting and being there and listening and encouraging. Patience to the weak, well, it means just helping whatever that looks like. Now, let me say that, that it, and it's ongoing, it, of, of course it needs discernment. Of course it needs to, to have wisdom. I mean, we're not seeking to try and create codependent Christians. But when people are weak and broken, they've more often, no, they, they actually need the whole congregation because, because one Christian cannot carry the load of trying to help and support and encourage a broken Christian. It, it's, a, it's a family thing. But patience does mean that we, we don't give up on people. Now, let me make this a little bit more practical. If we're going to practice the type of patience that I've described to you from this passage... It means that we're going to need to take the time to get to know each other a little better. I sat with a couple in the week, and uh, it was it was a wonderful time. And, and we, we we were sitting in their home. I was sitting in their home, and 
we're sharing a bit of life and, and, and a little window, I had a privilege of this person just opening up a little window for me and them sharing a part of their life which I never knew before. And I, I tell you, as I was sitting there and listening to that story, it was absolutely gut-wrenching in, in, in parts. As I, I listened to some of, the, some of the, of the pain and the brokenness that they had gone through. You know, brothers and sisters, we can so unintentionally hurt one another because we can say things so flippantly, we can spray scriptures all over the place when we know absolutely nothing about the person's life. If, for example, you have never been sexually abused, would you please take the time to listen to that story of damage and hurt before you start giving encouragement? Because your intended encouragement can end up being a great deal of discouragement and damage if you're not careful. But on the flip side, we, 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 we need to take the time to get to, to know others. On the flip side of that is that we need to have the vulnerability to allow others to get to know us a little bit better. And it's risky. And it's hard but if we're going to encourage each other in a way that is loving and discerning and wise, then, then I've got to get to know you and you've got to get to know me and I've got to allow you to know me a little bit. And, and, I, and I know how wrong it can get, so let me make this personal. I've suffered with anxiety over a particular, in a particular area of my life since the age of 13. And uh, in my shame of, of, of that experience and ongoing experience, I, I hid, and I've hidden it. And I got, got saved, and then I heard all this condemnation, and man, and that just added to my shame, and I couldn't even pray to my father about it because I thought he was shamed on me. I just, I was just, just a mess. And uh, anyway, I remember a number of years ago now, I, I, the, the one time I really sort of, <laughs> had the courage to, to, to sit amongst the, uh, 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 believers and, 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 and I sort of felt that I needed to share my, my, my anxiety that went way back when. And, and as soon as I finished, there was one very, very well-meaning Christian that ended up, ended up saying something to this effect. Well, Paul, you don't need to be anxious. You just need to... And I shut down for the next 10 to 15 years. How easy is it to tell people what you think, how they should respond, what scriptures they should go to, when you haven't got a cooking clue about where this goes, how far it goes back, what experiences have added to that. And friends, this is not about trying to just sweeps in under the carpet. Let me give you one more thing. I mean, how easy is it? How easy is it to fire off an email of criticism and you haven't taken the time to find out the backstop, the backstory, what's going on? Ah, your criticism may be right, but very often it's not. So let me close here.
also tell you is I've learned to open my heart to trusted to trusted friends and family the encouragement that I have received if I want to call it the spiritual tonic that I've received as I walk this road of my own challenge and my own anxiety and so this verse again says it's, it's going to get a bit weird at times but that's okay it's going to get weird but then if you say something to me that's a bit inappropriate, guess what I've got to do? Be patient with you. <coughs> and not get all hustled and flustered and bustered and all the rest. Shall we pray? <coughs> Father, first and, uh, and foremost, Please would you continue by your spirit to use this, this sense of family that we have. We, we are your beautiful family, Father. We are, we are your bride in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, brother, we are and we are a virgin bride. And please would you, would you use that within us. And would you please truly by your spirit help us to see each other as as brothers and sisters that we truly are, but one that is actually stronger and better than any earthly man. And then within that, Father, please would you help us to lovingly, discerningly, wisely speak to one another, listen, and, and, and be willing to open up so that we can, we can do what this passage says, we can do what this verse says, we can love each other well. We want to love each other well. And Father, how you loved us. How laid down the life of your son for us. We would ask this. We would ask this. We would ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I have the music team?